Good afternoon. It's good afternoon in London. Good morning and good evening to people elsewhere. My name is Monica Krauss. I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at the LSE, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this lecture on behalf of LSE Human Rights. The lecture is entitled The Human in Human Rights, and it's the third and final lecture in a three-part series delivered by Professor Craig Calhoun. The first was delivered last fall, the second uh, last spring, and both of these previous lectures are available as podcasts, and I would encourage you to um, listen to these lectures if you're joining us for, for the first time today. We'll also aim to make today's lecture available um, as a podcast in the same way. I'm really pleased to introduce Craig Calhoun, who is a university professor of the social sciences at Arizona State University and a centennial professor at the LSE, where he is also a former director. Craig's work has addressed a range of topics at the intersection of sociology, history, and political theory. He has shaped and reshaped the way we understand social movements, nationalism, humanitarianism, and social solidarity. I'm not going to talk to you today about his past uh, publications. I want to highlight one that is coming. I understand that Craig has just finished work on a book called Degenerations of Democracy. That's a co-author work with Charles Taylor and Dilip Gaunkar. And I think it'll be available in the spring or not too late after after we break uh, years from Harvard University Press and certainly here at LSE, we're waiting, waiting for our copies and, and look forward to discussing that work also in which the authors confront the challenges that democracy is facing today and help us conceptualize what is needed to rebuild a more inclusive form of social solidarity and the pursuit of the public good. In today's lecture, on human rights. Craig will speak to us for about 35 minutes. And after that, there will be time to for questions until we reach the full hour. Please submit your questions in writing and I'll be I'll do my best to convey them to Craig on your behalf. Thank you very much. And the floor is open for you, Craig. Thank you, Monica, and thanks to everybody who is in attendance. Uh, it has been mostly a pleasure to be a part of this series for LSE Human Rights. Um, when we originally conceived it, we imagined all three talks would be in person, and that would have had additional pleasures of other kinds. Um, <clears throat> in addition, preparing these three um, lectures has involved the combination of pleasure and pain typical of academic intellectual work, including work with schedule and having to um, have ideas on demand. The overall conception remains, I think, clear. Um, and I have, in the course of preparing the lectures, developed some particulars. Unfortunately, the disjointed 
nature of the lectures may make it a little hard to connect some of today's particulars to the overall stream. So let me begin by just noting the background theme that tacit assumptions about the human are coming unstuck. Uh, I began in the first lecture noting that after history, the category of the human had been stabilized sufficiently by the late 1940s that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights took it as obvious. It didn't feel any need to say what a human was when it said that all humans have rights and equal rights. This was a position arrived at with much pain, struggle, conflict, um, and upheaval over the previous several hundred years. And it's the definition of the human stayed obvious for only about 50 years. Since then, there's been a great deal of critique and upheaval in it. This has been partly um, intellectual and political, as, for example, there has been a great deal of critical attention to false universality, uh, to claims to be speaking neutrally about the human, when in fact, uh, speaking from the Western Judeo-Christian traditions, uh, supported prevailing views that we might better see as parochial than universal, um, or uh, the uh, ways in which discourses of the human have seemed linked to colonial and capitalist power and cultural hegemony, or not least, the way in which various kinds of disciplinary mechanisms in the Foucauldian sense have made the human an object of normalization, um, in tension with diverse sexualities, mental illness, disability, um, and a variety of kinds of difference. There's also simply the fact that we constantly observe failures of solidarity. That is, we declare universal human rights and um, see racism, failures to accept migrants, uh, inequality, nationalism. We go through the pandemic, not really demonstrating that we are clear that we are all in it together as humanity. We confront climate change and the Anthropocene in ways that on the one hand, question um, whether humanity should be as central to our thinking as it is, and on the other hand, um, demonstrate our lack of solidarity as humans. And I mean this both, if you will, laterally, as it's not clear um, how strong the solidarity of Europeans and Americans is with, say, those affected most immediately by climate-induced emergencies, say, in the Maldives. But I mean it also that we sell out future generations, that our category of the human in books is said to have a great deal of depth as we recognize continuity over history and extension into the future. But in our practice, we find this hard and we discount the future very radically. And that raises questions about the idea of the human. Now, in the first lecture, I introduced, among other things, the notion of a prevailing logic of the human in the West that was based on categorical equivalence, a set of equivalent human beings. This can be um, seen as atomistic, um, it can be criticized in various ways, but it's been a powerful notion that there's a set of humans and everyone is in it. But it has a 
um, strong serial dimension, um, suggesting there are all of these individuals and a weak attention to relationships. Now, I resist the temptation to repeat that. The second lecture, I turned to one version of transformation, the ways in which, aided by science and modern technology, we have moved to transform human beings physically, functionally, genetically, and in other ways. So through assisted fertility, genetic engineering, pharmacology, neuroscience, mechanical devices that are implanted into people or built into us as supplements uh, to our bodies uh, in a cyborg fashion, we have begun to transform the human in ways that can make us healthier, can also put us at risk, and that are hard to deal with within the conventional logic of categorically equivalent human beings. Today, I want to turn to a different kind of transformation that is also challenging, I think, and this is artifice, taking seriously the extent to which we make the human and make the world around the human. So to foreshadow, we um, live in a world in which artificial intelligence is more and more important, but in which artificial intelligence is understood mainly as the application or development of computer technologies in the last 50 years, uh, with machine learning, for example, that gives us voice-operated devices and the host of other technologies we associate with AI. But I want to situate this a bit more deeply as raising questions that the appeal to nature behind human rights didn't always answer. The appeal to nature has been powerful in the modern era. We think of ourselves as natural beings. The very language of artificial intelligence suggests that our intelligence is natural or ordinarily real or normal and that there's something other to artificial intelligence. Now, I think in some ways there are things that are other. I'm not denying that um, the uh, forms of intelligence may be different, but I'm suggesting that the difference is not entirely well-labeled by the notion of artificial, um, because there's more that is, in a sense, artificial about us. Second and relatedly, this takes us into the issues of internal and external. Already in discussing transformations of human beings as bodies or uh, uh, genetic makeup, I noted that the internal-external dichotomy is problematic, that we inhabit a biome, as has been discussed, and there is a constant interchange um, at the microbial level between what's inside our bodies and what's outside, but also as we um, perform surgeries, as we engage in various attempts to use neuroscience to remake brain functions and so forth, the inside-outside um, boundary is destabilized. So back to the categorical equivalences, we have not only a question about where to draw the boundaries around the human, right? Chimpanzees seem to be just outside to most people, right? 
maybe um, artificial intelligence programs are just outside too. Um, we have questions about the discreteness of the individuals inside and whether we can think of these units as self-sufficient autonomous beings in the same way we have. And if we question the inside-outside dichotomy, we question one of our major ways of thinking about the human, which is to look inside ourselves, to um, take up the greatly expanded sense of interiority, which has been characteristic of the modern era, though it has forebears. Let me launch this discussion by taking us back to uh, Thomas Hobbes in the 16th century and the famous opening passage of Leviathan. It's a long passage, but let me read out at least part of it to you. Hobbes' famous book, which is usually read as political theory, quite rightly, but is also an account in part of what it is to be human, begins. Nature, the art whereby God hath made and governs the world, is by the art of man, as in many other things, so in this also imitated, that it can make an artificial animal. For seeing life is but a motion of limbs, the beginning whereof is in some principal part within, why may we not say that all automata, engines that move themselves by springs and wheels as doth a watch, have an artificial life? For what is the heart but a spring, and the nerves but so many strings, and the joints but so many wheels, giving motion to the whole body, such as was intended by the artificer? Art goes yet further, imitating that rational and most excellent work of nature, man. For by art is created that great leviathan called a commonwealth, or state, in Latin, civitas which is but an artificial man, though of greater stature and strength than the natural, for whose protection and defense it was intended, and in which the sovereignty is an artificial soul, as giving life and motion to the whole body. The magistrates and other officers of judicature and execution are artificial joints, reward and punishment, by which fastened to the seat of the sovereignty, every joint and member is moved to perform his duty, are the nerves that do the same in the body natural. The wealth and riches of all the particular members are the strength. Salus populi, the people's safety, its business. Counselors by whom all things needful for it to know are suggested unto it are the memory. And on and on and on. Now, let me stop reading this out and note a few things about this metaphor. First, there was a great deal of concern with automation long before our current wave of interest. This has been running through the history of modern technology, and it's even older um, as the pursuit of um, uh, perpetual motion suggests. The era of the 16th and 17th centuries um, that influenced Hobbes was an era of great fascination with automata, with mechanical devices that seemed to move of their own accord. Watches were preeminent, as Hobbes suggested, but there were mechanical birds and all other kinds of automata that were greatly treasured. And 
which were devices for thinking what we were as humans and thinking what we might create. Now note that one of the first things that comes through in Hobbes' passage is that human beings are mechanisms. This mechanistic understanding of the human would endure well beyond Hobbes, endures into the present day, gives us insight into the artificial intelligence questions and other issues of automation, but is also subject to challenge. It's worth noting that genetic engineering reinforces the conception of the organically human as being a kind of mechanism. A mechanism means a couple of things here. First, that the parts are dissociable from each other. It's worth noting how much of genetic engineering pursues single traits or seeks genes that will govern single traits. In fact, there usually are multiple genes involved and the expression of genetic influence is more complicated, but the agenda is to get at eye color or intelligence as dissociable from the whole. So a mechanistic understanding of the way the different genes relate to each other and the different dimensions of the human relate to each other. But secondly, it accents mechanism because it focuses on cause and effect. That is, it is literally technology. Genetic engineering is engineering. It has a way of um, intervening mechanically into the makeup and operation of human beings, and so do a variety of other kinds of transformations that I talked about last time. So the sense of ourselves as mechanistic is reinforced by our abilities to um, manage ourselves as mechanisms. The challenge to this, that we really are creatures of purpose, not just mechanical cause and effect, that we are creatures of experience, that we are creatures of expression, as in poetry, is not reinforced in the same way by our contemporary technologies. It's a challenge that is offered by philosophers, particularly of the continental variety, and by a variety of other thinkers, but that doesn't have the same grounding in the powerful experiences of transformation through technology, including medical technology. The Hobbesian account also introduces us to atomistic individuals. It is so many different separate individuals who make up the state. They have an instrumental need for each other at the most basic to avoid life being um, nasty, brutish, and short. They band together for mutual defense. But Hobbes recognizes intersubjective welfare functions, as we would call them, only through the state. In a model of a kind of division of labor, in which different members of the state, different natural people, perform roles. Remember, every joint and member is moved to perform his duty. So by virtue of being in the state, we are rendered human beings, not as separately natural, but in the only way we ever experience ourselves as human beings, as already included in large-scale, quote, artificial systems. 
Now, we can question the extent to which artificial is the right descriptor, as I've said. We can say, well, a lot of this didn't get chosen in a moment of social contract. It got produced um, informally and unconsciously or semi-consciously over a long period of time. The um, motif of the alleged social contract is only a device for asking what is just. Fine. But this question of whether this is artificial and whether this is entirely outside us and we are within it is an important question. States, as Hobbes describes them, are mechanistic contrivances solving problems in human lives. That is, they are things we have created to solve problems, like we have created railroads and cars to solve transportation problems. We have created states to solve problems of mutual defense, but then also um, of the commonwealth, literally, of the public good. And uh, so we have a need to understand this. But Hobbes's account is profound in this other sense, that we are always being conditioned by our membership in the state. Even if we reject Hobbes's account of the state, and Hobbes's account of the original war of all against all, and much else, we tend to stay within this notion in which we are all participants in this always already there, artificially created world, yet at the same time, we tend to have reference to natural human beings, as though we could discover and talk about such things. Um, Classical economics had its Robinson Crusoe stories in which it endeavored to uncover the nature of the economic agent by imagining him, it was always a him, on a desert island, and then imagining the origins of markets when he discovered that his man Friday was also there. Well, quite aside from racism and sexism in this, there is this artificial disengagement as though the real human is prior to inseparable from all of the social human. Now, states are mechanistic because humans have roles within the state and interact with each other, but are not transformed. The Hobbesian vision and hundreds of years of visions after that tends to suggest that the natural humans remain what they were. What I'm basically driving at is this is implausible. Right? What behavioral economics and behavioral psychology have made um, a uh, so-called theory of nudge, that is, of um, designing systems to encourage good behavior on the part of participants. Right? You may remember the Blair administration had a whole nudge department that was going to figure out how to get us to do good things, in essence, by tricking us into it. This is the normal reality of participation in social organization and has been all along. It is just being made more formal and more explicit. But what it requires us to, to recognize is the limits of mechanistic thinking because we are transformed by our participation in these systems. There is a causal rather than a voluntarist, and certainly not an expressive, explanation for the social contract in Hobbes. But right, 
we need to take some other things away from it. This is not a talk mainly about Hobbes. Hobbes is just a starting point. States here are corporations. They are thus being treated as individuals. The artificial man, Leviathan, is himself an individual. International relations theory on through people like E.H. Carr is trying to wrestle with nations and states as artificial individuals. But we should also think business corporations, that in the words of the then Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, James Marshall, have no soul to damn and no body to kick, but the rights of individuals at law um, and a kind of distinctness from their individual owners and managers. So that when you sue a corporation, unless um, there's a very particular legal setup, you aren't suing its members. You're not suing its managers. You're not suing its owners. You're suing um, the corporation. This is precisely the difference from Lloyd's of London and why it's not a corporation in the same sense, because members have unlimited liability, unlike the owners of joint stock companies. Right? Non-human persons are an extremely important part of the world as we've inhabited it for 100 years. They've proliferated. They may or may not be atomistic, The Hobbesian atomistic account was extended into most international relations accounts of the relations among states, which are understood as not governed. They're sovereign states. There is a kind of anarchy. There is potentially still a war of all against all, only just barely being held at bay by treaties and other mechanisms um, in international relations, right? Though there are questions about this in a variety of other categories. What does civilization do, bringing culture in and suggesting that some of these actors are not quite atomistically equivalent, but have affinities for each other in various ways? Not going to go there um, entirely, but I want to note that this world in which there are many non-human persons, corporations in particular, has a variety of actors with whom we interact in important ways, though usually from whom we are asymmetric. There are systems of interdependence in all of this, and we are constantly conditioned by our interaction with these larger systems. So human being, that that which we sense when we say, hey, I'm a human being, I experience human being, is organized by participation in artificial systems, as well as nature. We have constructed the world historically. We kind of know this. We know that population have grown, has grown, for example, and that we've developed technologies like contraception that can limit that, right? We know in the word, the Anthropocene, that humans have remade nature. We ought to pay more attention to this, and I'm going to do so very briefly, given the time, But then we need to take this as some of the basis for thinking about the issues raised by artificial intelligence. When we say we remade nature, the discussions tend to be a big account of how we have caused the death of species, the extinction of species. We have caused the rise in mean global temperatures, that we are creating upheavals in weather, all true. But we should think of some more benign everyday examples just to make sure that we get how long and how much we've been remaking nature. Think of the English landscape as we know it with the hedgerow, 
marking divisions between fields, right? What England looks like, why it's familiar when you come in to land in an airplane, is partly an organization of the landscape of, quote, nature. Not the cities, right? But the agricultural landscape, the relation of forest to open field and the presence of hedgerows, right? All of this is artificially created. None of it just nature without human intervention. There's been a deforestation. There's been enclosure of fields. There's been draining um, of, of land for agriculture. And there's been the planting and cultivation and maintenance of the hedgerows, or in some places, the stone walls. You know you are in certain parts of England when instead of hedgerows, there are stone walls, often dry stone laid, right? More manifestly, artificial. So history is also remade agricultures, mining. It's remade whole ecologies, produced pollution exhaustion, extinction, right? And it's produced the human world we inhabit together through, to borrow Arendt's channeling of ancient Greek categories, labor, work, and action. That is, our work on nature to secure our sustenance, our work to create the conditions of our lives together, building chairs and desks and computers and Zoom, and our action in making promises to each other, like constitutions and laws that organize our activity together. So we inhabit this world we've made together in a variety of senses, right? And history, practical activity in society have produced a great deal of what we call and still experience as human nature. We think of this as just who we are and therefore as directly the result of our natural makeup though we've adjusted our thinking about natural makeup to include genes compared to earlier period. But we don't think of language and culture, which help to make possible our very reflection on ourselves. So our existence is in language and culture, and not just instrumental use of language, but expressive language. Our ability to express ourselves, which also shapes our ability to reflect on ourselves and to think of ourselves as having nature um, in a way, but also second nature, which I'm going to dwell on a little bit more in just a moment. The Aristotelian category of second nature, Pierre Bourdieu remade it as habitus, drawing a lot on Merleau-Ponty and phenomenology, but our internalization of our external context. Merleau-Ponty gave the famous example of a football player, right, who has to be aware of the entire field. I'm just thinking of a soccer player, football in the European and English sense, right? Um, but it goes for almost any sport involving balls and movement that it has to become second nature to the player. If the player thinks and stops, oh, I wonder if I should try for a goal or pass right now, right? The play is not very effective. The flow, the motion of the field is governed by lines of force and by a whole perspective, right? That becomes second nature to the player. But in the same sense, 
the ability each of us has to interact in society is not to use everything outside of us as a tool in an external sense, but to inhabit a world in which we have developed as second nature capacities for interaction, including tool use, right? We have practiced in various ways, but also we engage in practices. When we do something um, like voting politically, or we do something like driving, right? There is a second nature component. There is an immediacy of the mind and body together. There is an experience, right? Driving may be the ultimate experience of human agency or the ultimate experience of how much we hate the social context that limits our freedom because of the traffic jam or the congestion charge, right? A great many of the conditions for human life as we know it, right, inhere in technology or in social organization, as well as in language, culture, and everyday interaction. So we might even think of language as technology, but certainly writing and printing are technologies and shape the world as we inhabit them and our sense of ourselves. We have an enormous range of infrastructural technologies that we inhabit to communicate. So communications from writing to the internet and all sorts of communication is not just outside us, right? But problematizing the inside outside boundary and shaping who we are, conditioning us. And there are other infrastructural technologies, water and waste that make possible cities and modern dwellings, but also reshape our individual human habit inhabitation of the world in a whole variety of ways. Transportation, distribution, as we learned during the pandemic, as we began to order food in all the time and have deliveries, um, we are connected in a variety of ways, to external supply. We take them for granted until they're disrupted. All right, so too social organizations, including those that we constitute as non-human persons. Now, in all of this, we have non-human persons before we have non-human intelligences. And the non-human persons offer a clue because they are socio-technical systems in which we participate. And it may be that the most important forms of artificial intelligence are not artificial persons or artificial brains or imitations of human intelligence in the individualistic sense, but artificial systems. And that the real power of AI is as it fits into these artificial systems, which we have already noted, we ourselves inhabit as systems. The corporations, the artificial intelligences, are not just monsters and golems, imitations of the human, right? They have long histories as co-inhabitants of our world. We've proved terrible at regulating corporations. Think of all the disputes over taxation now going on in the European Union, right? It's question whether we'll be any better at regulating the new artificial socio-technical systems. So how separable are human beings from this historically produced reality? Let's go back to that idea of second nature. We inhabit conditioning environments. We are who we are and who we think we are naturally because of 
what we have learned from our environments. And we learn largely by operant conditioning, that is, not consciously, but also in semi-conscious and sometimes in conscious ways. We inhabit and we internalize workflows. Before the algorithm guiding the software of the mechanical or electronic computer, there were workflows. There were instructions for getting things done in a division of labor. In every factory, in every office, there was a movement, right? The assembly line has a series of stations in which differentiated functions are performed. But so does the bureaucracy, which is organized as a set of workflows. As we all, well, those of us as old as me, will remember from documents which used to circulate with a cover sheet saying, must be signed off at in each of these offices and were sent around the bureaucracy for signatures. There was a workflow. This related the sales department to the legal department to the production, right? And in a series of tasks. But we were all inserted into these workflows to perform our jobs. They might be highly specialized jobs, and we did nothing but affix tires to wheels in the car assembly line. But they might also be highly differentiated, in which we had to perform a series of tasks in a workflow in which we were already being made to behave as a kind of automaton. Right? And so the sad history of automation is that the moving parts of automation were people for a very long time, and only gradually was there a supplementation by other kinds of devices. Now, this doesn't make us algorithms. It's a misunderstanding of the human being to say simply that we were nothing but algorithms all along, right? But it does create an affinity or an analogy the workflows by which humans perform work in complex organizations like bureaucracies or factories essentially identified the steps in the workflow that could be automated one after another, creating temporary bottlenecks. Or more precisely, since the Hobbesian Leviathan is an automaton, steps by, that could be independently, electromechanically automated. So human beings share with artificial intelligences, AIs, and with nature, deployment into complex systems. Both human beings and artificial intelligences, moreover, are also vulnerable to surveillance and manipulation. Some of the basic human rights issues that we associate with artificial intelligence are things like, is there any privacy anymore? Is there a right to forget? Are we subject to constant surveillance? And it's important to remember that the surveillance is not just state surveillance, as we imagine the Chinese are using technologies to surveil their citizens, but market surveillance, as each of us is subject to constant surveillance for every transaction we make, particularly if we make it in the increasingly non-cash economy. Um, so we have the irony of escapes for the rich into tax havens and other ways, um, avoidance of taxes in various cash forms, but overall a surveillance capitalism that subjects us all the more constantly to monitoring. 
We worry about loss of privacy. We should worry probably even more about error in the data that is being recorded about us. But this data is then used to organize systems to manipulate us. The manipulation may be benign, like trying to get people going on and off of public transport to pay when they're supposed to pay, rather than having to deploy police to check on it all the time or put in cumbersome turnstiles. This works much better in Norway than in Britain, and it doesn't work at all in the US yet, but there are ways to engineer compliance. That, it seems to me, is entirely benign to get people to pay for public transport, but it's not always benign. And even when it's benign, it is a reminder that who we think we are, we are the kind of people who don't cheat when we get on the tube, is in fact engineered. And so we participate in systems that make us who we are and allow us to feel natural about who we are at the same time. It's not clear that all of the development of artificial intelligences in this is a radical departure as opposed to a enormous quantitative increase in the capacity for building these systems. There are dramatic departures. The um, AIs that can play chess or go better than any human master and so forth. It's worth noting there are discrete tasks. The holy grail being pursued is artificial general intelligence. That is the overall learning that is transposable across different kinds of discrete tasks, more or less as human learning is. But I've tried to suggest the AIs and the humans are embedded in the systems. And a lot of our attention should be on these systems and how they organize, not just governments of us, but our very experience of what seems natural because of our learning, um, our building of second nature, a kind of second immediacy. And terms for translating second nature include the idea of a bad immediacy, the illusion of being immediately this, but I think it is actually the only experience of being in ourselves that we have we may get manipulated into being more acquisitive, right? Or into thinking in meritocratic societies that there is some sort of justice in trying to um, maximize the inequalities of our society so long as we also have governance of fairness of selection. And so we become people who understand ourselves as those who always did well on tests and therefore, those who are deserving of all of the benefits of radically unequal higher education or radically unequal employment. We can't easily escape or slough this off. So it challenges human rights to rethink some of the right, the regime of the good, to support not only the goods of persons as they in our imagination exist potentially outside of systems, but as they are embedded in systems. And here we have to think of people as we are embedded in self-transformation, in transcendence, if you will, in the um, notion that Sen and Nussbaum have made prominent, that human beings should be self-realizing and self-developing, 
but also in the stronger sense, linked perhaps to Charles Taylor as much as to any leading philosopher, in which we transcend ourselves. We transcend ourselves in community and social relations, in language and culture, and in remaking ourselves. Possibly this is linked to the transcendence with a capital T of the divine, possibly not, but it is certainly linked to a temporality of going beyond. We inhabit a reality not entirely of our own making, whether divine or natural, or already humanly created, like culture and social organization, right? We discern meaning in this by evaluating its significance for us, including with strong moral evaluations. That's unjust, right? That is betrayal, right? Um, that is at odds with human rights, right? So we don't just find value in it, we invest it with value, we act with purpose, and we remake this reality as we do this, possibly transcending some of its limits and our own, though likely creating new issues. So to close this off, we necessarily live in culture and social relations, not just in an abstract and at large way, but our intelligence, human intelligence, inheres in these, not simply in individual brains, right? Human intelligence isn't in here. It is among us in crucial ways. It is among us with the aid of technologies that help to create supplements to our memory, language for our communication, infrastructures for our relations, building out what Hobbes described with Leviathan. We depend on sustaining contexts to be viable individuals, not on freedom from those contexts, but on contexts that we find sustaining and which support what we understand as a good second nature. So perhaps the potential for this transcendence and work on second nature needs to be crucial for human rights. Perhaps it's what we most value in the human. We often sound as though what we most value is the merely natural that is prior to the social, but perhaps what we most value is our capacity to make ourselves better. And this capacity is what we need to guard with thinking about human rights. But guard not as though the AI is radically external and simply a new technological threat, but guarding with a recognition that various kinds of artificial intelligence and artificial system making are integral to making ourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig, for this lecture. We'd like to hear from you. We'd like to have your questions. Uh, keep putting them in the box. I'll take the chair's prerogative to ask the first question. I think you touched on this at the end, but I wanted to ask you about the notion of rights. So if we, if we think, if we rethink what it is to be human in these relational ways, less mechanistic, less dualistic, is, 
is there still a place for the notion of rights or is the notion of rights itself tied to these other ways of thinking? So key question, Monica, I've tried throughout this to take on the gambit of thinking about human rights. So I have lots of qualms about rights. So most usage of rights collapses into a kind of atomistic individualism that is problematic. Um, and it, you know, is a translation of natural law into a new kind of regime that worries me by, by making it harder for us to see this relational social context I've been trying to describe. That said, I do think that um, we um, gain from the language of rights abilities to try to distinguish why we don't want human beings as individuals entirely subsumed into these external systems without choice and without capacity to shape their own futures, right? So it's not all bad. It's just got a lot of baggage, in my view. Um, and we haven't found a great alternative to it. Um, and so I think we continue to work with it. And we need to, you know, if you will, transcend the reductionist version of human rights into a more genuinely and seriously sociocultural notion of human rights, um, just as we need to sort of transcend the mechanistic, atomistic notion of the human mm -hmm. um, into a more social. Thank you. The next question is from Sirsha, who is a human rights and politics student here at the LSE. The discussion on shaping our environment reminded me of Adorno and Horkheimer's dialectic of enlightenment. Do you think our ability to master and artificially shape our external environment leads to human beings taking on a despotic, godlike role of control? I think the pursuit of mastery, um, which you rightly recognize as a core theme in dialectic enlightenment, is a core theme here. So this you know, has a history of four Horkheimer Dorno with Nietzsche and all of that. And I think Horkheimer and Adorno exaggerate the novelty of this and exaggerate the way in which it is part of what they think of as enlightenment, but only exaggerate. They're not wrong about it. Um, I think that the side of human beings which seeks mastery as a way of responding to um, the problems of life and challenges from outside us um, does have the implications that Horkheimer Dorno suggest, that it underpins violence ultimately. Um, I say the side of human beings, though, because I think it's not just um, a discrete phenomenon and it's not just successful mastery. It's a way of understanding ourselves as pursuing mastery. So, Horkheimer and Adorno go to some distance, some ex um, distance down the path of challenging the dualisms of inside and outside, but not all the way. And part of what's at issue, it seems to me, is developing a way to think beyond 
this kind of dualistic understanding. And mastery is a way of operating within the dualistic understanding, mastering nature, mastering other people, all of the series of these um, problems that I think have the bad effects, they said. But I don't think that the solution is simply a non-mastery within that um, continued inside, outside us, them dualism, right? Um, or put another way, there are all kinds of philosophers who think that they are no, not influenced by Cartesian mind-body distinctions, but they've only gotten rid of the Cartesian form of these, and we're still embedded, embedded in lots of dualisms. Um, and I think that's the case here too. Um, the, and we call for non-mastery as an attitude of individual persons rather than seeing that, that it's a co-production of a different future that is crucial. And Horkheimer and Dorno famously got kind of stuck on their ability to be optimistic about a different future um, for the understandable reasons of the Holocaust and World War II. Um, you know, their fellow traveler, Herbert Marcuse, tried to find ways to be more optimistic in this. Jürgen Habermas has tried to find ways to be more optimistic. Um, understanding for um, the Habermas evolution, but for Marcuse, something closer to the transcendent and an artistic life that can reach outside and beyond and build something new and different. Um, Horkheimer and Adorno wound up leaving it, say, put it a message in the bottle, good advice for the future. Um, Marcuse may or may not have succeeded, but he struggled with how can we, despite this, experienced compulsion to mastery, um, nonetheless find paths to create something radically different. And that's where I think we have to go. Thank you. Avani, who is also an MSc Human Rights and Politics student at the LSE, asks about the notion of the artificial. So if the artificial precedes our notions of what is considered artificial, and as a consequence, artificial intelligence, do you think we need other etymologies to construct the so-called artificial ontology? Yeah. Um, yes, but I haven't been able to come up exactly with the right answer to this. So etymologies and words, um, that is, I think we need to be able to speak differently about it. That's partly a matter of having different words, but also having a an understanding of the path of development of the way we talk. Um, and... Um, so, yeah, I agree. I wish I had the answers. Oh, yeah, we just need to say this. Herbert Simon, one of the founders of artificial intelligence, wrestled with this in a book called Science is the Artificial and Elsewhere, um, noting that it was natural for human beings to create the artificial so that art, right, you know, we have the valence of thinking. Art and artificial, as though these are sort of different things rather than human creativity, which we may not want to think of as all artificial. So the products of that creation there. And, and I'm trying to think, what's the alternative etymology here? Well, this is then something important in Marx's 18, 
um, 44 manuscripts on alienation. The products of our human creativity seem alien to us. Well, then what we think of as the artificial is like that. We have alienated our creativity into it. But the starting point of it is our, quote, natural um, human creativity. Um, and we have problems with the natural here because we're using this in a way which is already shaped by the dualistic contrast to the artificial um, nature culture. Um, we don't really have a way of getting at nature that isn't already shaped, right? Um, and um, so we produce a kind of illusion about nature, even as we produce the misleading understanding of the artificial, if you will, um, and lacking better words, um, I'm saying, well, we need to understand the path by which we get there in order to change how we think about this and the words we use. I didn't have time to go into a you know, the theme about art, but um, the artificial um, has resonances for us very different from the artistic or the creative. And um, reconnecting these may be helpful. Let me put a last question to you from Rodi, who is also an LSE student uh, from China. What's your thought on the alienating and dehumanizing effects of most social systems which deprive original human nature and exert a sort of atomizing force Uh, the atomizing effects of technologies. Do you agree with Plato that we are by nature political animals? Um, I agree with Aristotle that we are by nature political animals. That being political animals means also being social animals. His notion of, of the Zonblakan included that. And being animals who create our future through this, not just animals that struggle over power, um, but animals that create the future together. So what's most distinctive about human beings, I'm trying to say, is that, it's our Entian sense, really, that we are able to um, create the future together. As the previous question suggested, we're able to do that terribly. We're able to cause holocausts and wars and violence, right? So there's no guarantee that our creativity goes well. And when we instrumentalize our creativity, hence the mastery and all of that, um, that's a problem. But I don't think that recovery of original human nature is the solution to that problem. Um, I think you know, through much of human history and in many societies, there has been much more privileging of what we have come to cause the artificial, call the artificial. Um, so people have wanted to be um, better people in accord with Confucian teachings or Buddhist teachings or in accord with Christian ideas of moral law and God. And so the um, idea of the natural person hasn't been valorized as much. Um, what's been valorized in many traditions is how we can, in fact, tame that and rise above ourselves. Western modernity produced 
um, a notion of the authentic natural person that put a huge privileging on this idea of natural with, as I suggested, the illusion that what we experienced as natural was in fact always already social um, and, and shaped. I want to suggest that that's a resource for us, that if we are going to build a future, we, have, we should build a future that enables us to benefit from the new interiority and sense of our creativity, our spontaneity, our individuality, without being reduced to that um, and to a dualism. So what we need to do is to overcome the dualistic division of that from the social in trying to realize um, both better in some hypothetical future. Now, that's in a sense what the Marxist idea of communism um, proposed in Marx's writings. It's not what any actually existing communism achieved, it seemed to me. Um, and Marx, you know, embedded it in a logic of determinate negation class struggle that may not be the path. But the idea that we would be different, that we would create a world in which individuality wasn't reduced to the narrow versions of it it is often now, but wasn't lost either by creating sustaining contexts for it, seems to me a vague but good notion of the future, and we should work to make that more real and to undo the things that block our efforts to move towards such a future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig, for the lecture. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the questions and the answers to the questions. Thanks, everyone, for coming. <laughs>